Welcome to Watch Party Wheel of Time. I'm your host, Saima. And before you get too discombobulated by today's episode opening, not with Ruark's buttery tones, but my clipped English, let me share that we're just doing a special episode focusing on femme perspectives of the Wheel of Time. And I just want to mention here that our sister podcast, Watch Party Lord of the Rings, are also doing something that overlaps theme-wise. They're going to be looking at Arwen's role from book to screen, which will be coming up, so make sure to check out their podcast. That's Watch Party Lord of the Rings. So we've got a wonderful group of guests joining our panel today, but before we go into introductions, I just want to give a definition of what we mean by femme perspectives. For the purposes of our show today, we're using femme as queer identifying and from a queer perspective, and also as feminine identifying and from a feminine perspective. Our voices today come from folks who identify as female and or feminine and or have navigated the world being perceived as feminine for some or all of their lives so far. So for myself, I'm a brown woman. I was born female and I've been perceived as such and navigated my life through varying degrees of outward femininity. In my day-to-day work, I'm learning to unpack what the feminine and masculine mean for me, which is not what the hegemonic worldview tells me the feminine and masculine are. And I'm excited to see how the Wheel of Time show is portraying nuanced representation of masculinity and femininity. So from our regular panel, joining us today, we have Siobhan. Hi, Siobhan. Hey, everybody. Um, So uh, I am a... um I am white. I am non-binary. I was designated female at birth and raised as um, a woman. Um, I think I'm actually the oldest person on the panel. And so um, my having, having a name and language around my gender is fairly new in my life. And I'm still kind of figuring out how, how, how I want to navigate, um, my identity. Um, but, uh, I can definitely speak from the historical perspective of being perceived as being a woman and treated as a woman, especially as I was growing up in like the sixties and seventies when, you know, any other option just was not on the radar. Thank you. And Samaria. Hi, Samaria. Hi, Saima. Hello everyone. I'm Samaria. She, her, hers. I am black and queer. And if I prefer to break down my queerness, I like to say I am biromantic asexual. Um, There's a lot of nuance in that. Um, Let's see, I grew up never questioning that I, you know, I'm a girl, that I'm a woman. Um, But that doesn't mean I haven't questioned what that looks like for me. And so, you know, I know I'm not a guy and I know I'm not non-binary. I know I'm not non-binary. So there's that. But what femininity and masculinity looks like for me, especially as someone who grew up in, you know, what was once called the world of women, um, someone who grew up raised by, you know, a single father who was very adamant that I grew up self-sufficient and willful and headstrong and all of these things that are coded masculine and that I was sometimes often punished for as a small child for being in the context of school and friendships. What that looks like for me as an adult who fully enjoys being a woman, would choose to do it again if I had a choice about it, loves, you know, the female friendships, the female relationships I've cultivated, 
um, over my lifetime. Um, and really just coming to understand what that means for me. Um, so it's, it's been a journey, uh, mostly positive one. I'm very much against the idea that womanhood is defined by pain, um, since that's very much not been my experience for the most part. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm glad to be here in this conversation. I can't wait. Wonderful. And um, we're excited to have three guest panelists joining us today also. First up, we have Jessie. You may already be familiar with Jessie from YouTube. She has two phenomenal channels where she finds nuance in the nerdy. I love that tagline. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you so much. The channel names. Oh, the channel names are Jessie Gender and Jessie Gender After Dark. Check those out, folks. Jessie dives deep into Star Trek, but also shares reviews of other noteworthy fandoms, including The Wheel of Time. And we came across her excellent episode reviews of the show and wanted to hear more from her. So welcome, Jesse. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm so glad to be here. Um, my perspective is that I'm a trans woman, uh, assigned male at birth. So went through that whole period of my life where I was sort of questioning and figuring out my gender identity. And now I sort of identify as a, um, oh, and white as well. And I also identify as a demi-woman, which is sort of on the non-binary spectrum uh, leaning more towards uh, femme and femme presenting and, and identifying as a woman, but still also not completely on that binary woman uh, identity. And uh, yeah, that's sort of the perspective. Oh, I'm also neurodivergent as well. I'm on the autism spectrum, which also sort of informs a lot of my perspective on the world, my own gender, my own sexuality um, as well. And I'm a giant nerd, and uh, I got into Wheel of Time from watching the show, and I've no spoilers for them, obviously, but I've started reading the books um, so I'm a little bit further ahead in the show, but uh, but my fandom predominantly started from the show. So that's fantastic. And um, yeah, I saw that you've actually just finished the second book, so I haven't watched that mm -hmm. review yet. But um, so yeah, mild spoil spoilers beware for you there. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, yes. I'm in the middle of the third, reading the third wow. at the moment. Okay. So yeah, I'll, I'll keep I'll keep zip on on that all that stuff, but. <laughs> I, when I watched the show, I hadn't see, read the books yet, so I'll still be able to give that that perspective of like, oh, what is this world? So, so our second guest today is Akila. Akila is the founder and managing director of She Speaks, We Hear, a nonpartisan online platform for Muslim women to express themselves on their terms without being overpowered or silenced by sexism, racism, or Islamophobia. I've known Akila for not long enough through my day work, and I was thrilled to find out that she was a wheelie. We're everywhere. Welcome, Akila. Hi, Saima. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so my name is Akila, and I'm a, a Muslim woman, a brown Muslim woman. I wear a headscarf, and I have faced throughout my life different forms of discrimination, whether that is sexism that comes from people from my own background and faith or from wider society and then I've also faced quite I think um, sometimes quite dramatic racism as well especially as a young child um, and then more sort of subtle racism and Islamophobia as an adult and I think definitely those experiences have really kind of shaped um, my life experiences but they've also shaped what I do for my day job and also the fact that I set up a platform for Muslim women so that their voices can be heard and humanised. Um, and then it also shaped my view on the world and 
my passion, which is about increasing representation, not only for women who look like me, but for everybody, basically, and for all different types of minorities. And so that's why I've just been so excited about the series, because I think in some ways, and I'm sure we'll get into this, it has tried to do that. And that's been really exciting. And it, and I read all of the books, and I read them many years ago, so I've forgotten quite a bit. But it's made me think back to the books and think about actually, I didn't realise it at the time, but the books were also maybe trying to do that. I don't think that's a spoiler. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Yeah, totally not a spoiler at all. And uh, you keep telling me that you've forgotten a lot. And so when I say things that are spoilers, you're like, oh my goodness, that really happened? And I'm like, oh, now it feels like a spoiler because you'd forgotten about it. <laughs> it's a good perspective to bring. <laughs> I'm one of these strange people who actually likes spoilers. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm a rare, rare You're not, you're not alone in that. You're definitely not alone in that. <laughs> well, maybe we'll have to have an offline spoiler warning conversation at some point. <laughs> so our third guest is a Radiopedia from the epic What Spoilers podcast. The name says it all, folks. So if you haven't read the books, if you haven't even sniffed the books, stay away. Personally, I'm really enjoying listening to the podcast and the nitty gritty nits that they get into. And I'm looking forward to getting into the show grit today. Welcome, Aradia. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you all for for uh, being here and for inviting me. Um, this is going to be really fun. I know because I've talked with um, you before and that was that was a good time. So I'm glad to be here. Um, my perspectives is that Wheel of Time is my life. That is my entire identity. There is no other nuance. <laughs> um, no, but my actual perspective is um, I'm a white assigned female at birth, uh, non-binary woman thing, person, AFAB and annoyed, uh, gender ambivalent, gender agnostic. I don't know, um, but very much have lived my life as, as a woman and been read as a woman, but also like super gender non-conforming. My parents had very reverse gender roles, neither of them wanted to or had to conform uh, to a lot of gender roles while I was growing up. I was given a lot of freedom. So like my just attachment to gender roles is very like, eh. So non-binary, but also woman, because like I'm not going to put a lot of effort into changing how I get read. So I still get to live the woman's experience um, in that way. Also pansexual, because I just can't with with the concept of boundaries and limitations. I'm just like, people are pretty, except when they aren't, because I'm probably some kind of ace. I don't know. Like, <laughs> um, also identify as neurodiverse, totally not diagnosed, but a lot of my family and friends are, and I empathize with all of that real strong <laughs> and am kind of dysfunctional in a lot of ways. So definitely feel like autism spectrum stuff. Um, and yeah, Wheel of Time is something I have read a billion times. And a lot of my gender identity questions started with being mad at the gender binary that is so inherent to the Wheel of Time. It is not a spoiler to say that it is an inherent piece of the world building. Um, I do think that the show is starting to chip away at that a little bit, but we'll have to see because I've saturated in 15 books worth of this. But that my discomfort with that binary led me into realizing that I'm just uncomfortable with myself being in the binary. So for me, for all that Wheel of Time has a lot of very like, okay, older white man in the 90s trying to, you know, cater to American boys, like 
despite that, he somehow helped open up this whole world of questioning my identity uh, through his world building. So I enjoy finding the bits of representation and femme perspective and empowerment that he accidentally managed to put in through his uh, very thorough world building. So I think the show's doing a great job of capturing that spirit. And I think that we won't know how good of a job they're doing until we get farther in. <laughs> I know there's a lot of frustration around what the show hasn't done. But it's like, guys, they can't do it all in one season. They're they're, they're making me feel really optimistic, though, because oh, this world. I'm so excited for everyone who's just watching through the show to meet this world. It's just oh, so good. Oh, thank you, Radio. And I was thinking that this um, this podcast might be the hardest for you, right? Because you're used to full spoilery talk. So um, good luck with that. Um, but, <laughs> but you really, um, you really just dived right in there, you know, and everything that you said, I completely resonate with. I think sometimes, you know, the frustrations and... Um, you know, that that sharp edge is what really helps us to understand, well, why is this bothering bothering me and kind of exploring more the other perspectives. And I think a lot of people that have read the books, you know, could probably resonate with that. So I think like we've already started with, you know, an overall femme impression of the show as a whole. Um, we can, you know, get into the nitty gritty uh, as we go along. But I'm going to open it up um, to just a, an overall um diving in and I feel like a radius always already opened that door for us so <laughs> anybody like to start us off i i can i guess um I, one of the things that really drew me to the series was that initial sort of binarized magic system because especially knowing that these were books written in the 90s um i i always find it interesting to see how adaptations of older things try to evolve mythology that can be um, very ostracizing to people like myself and other people on this panel who are not necessarily fitting within that binarized worldview. Um, and when I came to the show without having read the books, I was sort of very curious to see how I was going to adapt that. And, you know, some of the things, you know, I'm, I'm excited to see what they did and then I'm excited for what they possibly can do in the future because some small things that they, they've done where they allowed the Dragon Reborn to possibly be anyone at the start of the series. Um, also making some of the queer, uh, implications of the book, like with the Amarlin seat, be actually explicit within the show, which was really cool to see. Um, some more diversity in terms of, like, the colors of the people that were depicted, um, on screen, um, was also really cool. And so just, just seeing that has me very encouraged to see how they're going to evolve it going forward, because I, I don't know, I just, as someone who's a big nerd and loves to like watch TV. Like I'm a big Trek fan. So I've watched Star Trek from the sixties, like stuff from the sixties, um, seeing that like mythology evolve and become more inclusive over decades. Um, I'm always just interested to see how franchises like that do that. And so seeing that in the show is just, um, it was intriguing and I'm curious to see how maybe they'll complicate it in the future, maybe with some trans non-binary characters possibly, but the show has me very encouraged where it's at right now. One of the things that, um, I really love about the show is how many women you see in leadership positions. Um, it's not just, um, you know, there, there are men and women in leadership. It seems to me that they are really pushing having most of the heavy hitters being women. So you do see kings, but you also see even more 
queens. You see even more women in leadership roles. You see women as fishermen. You see women as blacksmiths. Like there's really no gender division in the different roles that people can have in life. And that um, is not something that I grew up with. And there's certainly still fields where you don't see an equal representation. I mean, look at politics. You still don't see an equal representation of women. Um, I love that, Siobhan. Um, first of all, because it's wonderful. Also, second, because it got my mind spinning. My mind is no longer head empty. Um, <laughs> I enjoy seeing all kinds of women. And because that's not something that even in you know, other progressive media that you necessarily see. You typically you typically get one or two, maybe three if you're lucky, archetypes, and you just have to make it work. Um, and being in fandom, fandom is really, really good at making it work. If you're on, you know, the transformative work side of things, the fan art and the fanfic and the fan vids. Um, but in you know, the actual original piece of work that is very rare. And it actually took me a few episodes to catch on this because, as I mentioned before, I grew up around women. You know, my most of my mom's friends are women, and she has a lot of them. Um, I grew up making friends almost exclusively with other women. Um, I wanted to attend a women's college after high school. So, you know, I just really like being around other women. And I'm not picky about the kind. The only thing I request is a strong personality because otherwise I get really irritated really fast. Um, but, you know, watching Wheel of Time, you have Egwene and Nynaeve and you have Moraine. And usually that's where a show would just end it. And those would be your three kinds. But, you know, it completely expanded to the point where, you know, I found myself being a lot kinder and a lot more understanding and a lot more thoughtful about the female characters we were presented with because it wasn't as if I had to make do. And so critiques I would normally level against someone like Leandrin or someone um, such as, as men, I, I didn't have to because I could take them as they were in the context they like they were given in and just really appreciate them for who they are as people. Um, and, you, you know, that it was just really comforting. You know, it, it really did Wheel of Time season one feels like home in that sense. It, you know, it feels very familiar because, you know, the dozens of women I grew up around are just like that as well, you know. So, you know, I didn't have to when I meet someone in Wheel of Time, I don't have to meet them first as a woman, even if that is a fundamental aspect of their identity. I love how you just described that it feels like home. I think that the crew would be really happy to hear somebody who hasn't read the books and watched the show and says it feels like home. How wonderful. Yeah, really beautiful. I like I like what you said too, because um, it, having, having all these strong women characters means that you don't have one or two people that have to do all the heavy lifting for, you know, the, the, the woman in the cast. Yeah, I really um, enjoyed seeing the different depictions of the female characters. And I loved how 
um, they show different aspects of different types of women, as Samaria and Siobhan has said. But I think in addition to that, I love how they've also been very diverse in terms of their background and ethnicity. But then the show hasn't had to kind of spell it out. It hasn't had to say, oh, hi, I'm you know naive and I'm, you know, whatever, person of colour, whatever, whatever. Because sometimes you get some shows where they try and show representation but then I think maybe because they're not used to representation or depicting representation, then they almost kind of spell it out. And then you have this very strange aspect, you know, where a character is suddenly outside of their character talking about their identity and who they're supposed to be representing. And then they go back into character and then it feels very disjointed. Whereas with the show, I felt it was done very naturally, both for the female characters and the male characters. And there was none of this kind of spelling out stuff. So this is my ethnicity or this is my sexuality. And um, I think, you know, that has, it has, it has, it can be done well. And then that has advantages. And I think the show has done it well. And it, it definitely has advantages in that sense in that it's not just trying to pigeonhole its characters and it's not just trying to attach to like okay you know because some shows can feel like they're just trying to tick every single tick box of representation and so I felt with the Wheel of Time they did really well in not doing that and actually in letting us the viewers sometimes think oh is that person um you know, you know, are they maybe non-binary or, you know, it just let it let it it open for you to think about that, I felt. Um, And that's not to say that it shouldn't be done in the opposite way. But I just like the fact that it didn't kind of presume or try and be sort of tick boxy in that sense. Yeah, you made me think about how much that was expressed in the costumes. That was something I kept getting sucked into when we were, you know, what spoilers, we tried to do these these big, huge deep dive videos that are hours and hours long and still haven't been released because they're hours and hours long. Um, but really getting into the costumes, I mean, I don't know how long we spent going through every single person in the hall of the tower. Um, but I loved how much they were able to build the world's diversity by having all the different kinds of costumes. And then on top of that, the women's costumes were not like horribly uh, sexualized and inefficient. They were actually like thick, comfortable, cover you up, protect you from the elements kind of clothes. They were just cut for the female form instead of the male form, but they were just as sturdy. And the the costumes were so practical. Like I could imagine wearing them. Um Whereas, you know, most fantasy, it's like, well, men just basically wear potato sacks and women wear like gossamer. And that's basically it. And this show didn't do that. This show had a wide variety of like leather working and bead working and different kinds of fabric and different cuts. And all of it looked practical. So that made it more real and believable also. And then, yeah, even when you see like details you don't like, you're like, well, that's fine. I can just let that be its style and I'll, I'll go over here and, and enjoy this one instead because I like it better instead of being like well this is what I get this is this is what women look like I guess even though they all are color matching which on the one hand feels very uniform but then when you actually look at the details they weren't uniform at all it was just the color yeah I mean I feel like we could actually do uh, we are going to do an episode on uh, on costumes but we could go off on a complete whole huge side tangent on the costume and the femme perspectives of the costumes because I have seen a lot of people in the fandom 
um, and it could just be the ones that I've come across, but the comments that I've seen don't appear to be from, um, they appear to be from other than female perspectives who say that the costumes were rubbish and they all look the same and, you know, they didn't take enough time. And, and I'm like, what are you, like, all I see is the gorgeousness and the diversity and every belt is different. The placement of each belt is different because it's built for the woman who's wearing it and every woman is different. The shape, the size, the, you know, the way they inhabit, not just their body, but the clothing that's put on them. And as you were speaking already, I just thought, is this another something that a femme lens might lean more into because we, you know, are speaking as a woman. Oh God, you know, sometimes I just think a man can just turn up in, a, you know, a shirt and trousers and that's it. I mean, there could be issues around the shirt and the trousers, but that's it. That for whatever, whatever you want to wear it for, you just turn up and that's it. It's smart. It's casual. It's, you know, go hunting. It's, you know, go see your mom, whatever. I have always had such issues with clothes and what style and what do I feel like? And it was a smorgasbord of amazing style and comfortableness. You, know, you said that as well, that those are the kind of clothes. I mean, people that are complaining about why isn't Maureen wearing blue blue silks while riding. Have you have you tried that? Have you tried <laughs> spending months <laughs> on the road <laughs> in in thin blue silks, you know, and just like sleeping on the ground that the ground isn't soft, it's hard <laughs> and probably wet and, you know, boggy at some points. These are real real clothes and I totally am getting off into a tangent about costumes so yeah anyone else want to jump in <laughs> well no you it was interesting it's interesting that you say that about like a, a femme perspective with clothes because um as someone who's um assigned male at birth when I was growing up I wasn't really taught anything about fashion I was like here's your tie here's your button up here's your pants you're good uh and that was that was about <laughs> all I was I was really taught to to understand fashion as um and Coming into, you know, understanding that I'm I'm trans and things like that, uh, I have learned so much about how fashion allows people to express themselves, even in small and subtle ways, and, like, the small differences. Um, and so, like, for me, like, I try a lot more clothing than I ever would have tried before, and I'm still, like, figuring out my own way to express myself through clothing. Um, and I'm that'll probably be a continuing journey throughout my entire life, like it is for many people. Um, and so when I learn about like nerdy geeky shows like this one, I love seeing how people find ways to express themselves in the subtle, small differences um, in the world, because, you know, often we're told to like wear certain things, wear certain ways, but we find ways to express ourselves within that. And so I look at something like, you know, you talked about a lot of like male presenting people or seeming male presenting people don't really seem to appreciate that, but they'll appreciate things like armor in Lord of the Rings where it's like, oh, look, in the Lord of the Rings, every single piece of armor was different. It's because that's for like combat and aggression. Um, and we're not. And so assigned male at birth, people are often not taught to like see that same sort of attention to detail in things that aren't like aggression, armor, things like that. Um, and so I, I like seeing that within just like the costume, like the eyes that eyes costuming and things like that. I thought that was really just um, really wonderful. And you do see the individualism, like you see um, like Moraine's shoulder pads and um, Elena's uh, gold beads across the front of her, her um, I don't know what you call that piece of clothing, chest Bodice, bodice, yeah. I know bodice beads. I know nothing about clothes. Yeah. 
So yeah, so and you you do have that kind of expression of individuality, even though they all might be wearing the same color and part of the same aja. You do not see women fighting in high heels. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no Marvel heels in the entire show. <laughs> no, there's no heels, butts, and butt and boob shot that I. I was like, yes. deliberately. I always look out for that, right? When are we going to get the heels, the butt, and the boob side shot? We didn't get that, thankfully. Or the boob, or the boob window armor, because you always need to have the boob window armor. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's only season one, so. (laughs) That's true. There's so many more nations to explore. I I did like the fact that they had different clothes for work um, compared to showing up in the White Tower to be publicly chastised. They seem to be dressed much more formally. So it's like you're wearing your your formal formal robes because you know you're in trouble. (laughs) It's like wearing a tie. It's like wearing a tie to court. (laughs) So talking of the White Tower, one thing I was wondering about when I was watching the show was how um, how the women in the White Tower would be depicted and if they would be kind of shown in a very kind of stereotypical way of, you know, because obviously there's these tensions which we see in the show between the different Asias and the Isodai um, that the Isodai belong to. And then there's also tensions, obviously, between uh, Nynaeve and Egwene, the villagers, and then also Moraine as an Aes Sedai. So I was wondering about how that would be depicted. And I have to say that I was pleasantly surprised that it was depicted in a way which wasn't stereotypical, at least for the most part, I don't think it was. You know, there wasn't these kind of catfights or kind of, you know... um, funny snarky sort of looks from across the, the you know the hall in the white tower um actually i think at some point the tension was quite palatable and you almost kind of felt i almost kind of felt like um you know it, it, i imagine being in that room with Shuan uh, sanche you know the amarillin seat and kind of actually I, I kind of felt like if i was there i would have been scared and kind of in awe of her as well and i, I thought that was quite a difficult thing to get across in the show um but you know so i was really pleasantly surprised by that and then of course then we get to see a different side of, of swan sanche where she's expressing her i would call it femininity people might disagree with that but i thought then actually that was quite interesting, kind of showing the contrasting, how you can have one character can show almost kind of um, contradictory sides. Because TV shows, because they're so limited, I often find, and in fantasy, that sometimes they'll just show kind of one, a character in a very one-dimensional way. Um, And I thought that that was very nice, showing the vulnerability, but then you're almost scared of her. I thought that was really interesting. And actually, I think it, they also managed, this, the creators of the show also managed then to tie that into, like you are saying, the costumes, so the different costumes she wore, uh, Shawan Sanchez I'm still talking about, and then also into the set, I think, of the White Tower and Tar Valon. So um, I started off talking about uh, 
I can't actually remember what I was talking about now, um, but I've kind of gone through how there's basically, oh yes, I remember now, stereotypical representation of female characters um, and, and, and how they interact with each other. And I've now actually gone all the way talking about Swan Sanche and how they showed, how the show showed different sides of her character. And I thought actually that was done quite well. And I was surprised by that because I don't think that's an easy thing to do. I mean, something you just made me think about was um, how emotionality sort of was broken down in the show and that we kind of got different versions of that across uh, different gender roles. Like you see someone like Night Neve, who is like very um, like kind of closed off um, a much more sort of like um, not really outward with her emotions, which is not what we often see many femme presenting characters get to be within fiction which is really cool to see. And then you get someone like Lan, who is also very similar in that, and obviously the two characters are drawn to that, but then Lan also gets the one of the most powerful scenes in the show so far where he uh, is doing the grief scene and he's screaming um, and just showing all the grief for everyone at the, um, at the funeral, um, which is not something you'd necessarily see a male character in that role of like getting to be the one to show emotion, especially emotion of grief. I mean, most of the time when you see, like, depictions of funerals within TV shows or anything, it's like, oh, the women's off in the corner going sobbing and the men are just standing there just like, oh, wow, this is sad, I guess. Um, and it was just nice to see uh, Lan getting to be the one to fill that role in a really interesting way. Um, so, yeah, I think just, like, breaking down the ways that emotions um, were shown across gender roles was really awesome in this show. So I love the, the the two things that I feel like come up between Akila and, and Jesse is this. I feel like what Akila was talking about is there's a lack of toxic femininity, and there's a lot of positive masculinity. Like, and I feel that. Well, let's just focus on the show. Let's not talk about the books. The show did a great job with really um, getting rid of the toxic femininity with all those things that we expect when we get, you know, a group of women in a room together, you know, politicking. Uh, and manipulation and power currents um, but yet you get the respect and the dignity and yeah the awe the awe for the you know being in the hall of the tower and the Amelin seat and these are all sitters you know they're at the top of their game they've gained those positions because of respect um, so really amplifying that and then also then really amplifying the positive masculinity in terms of how, how everyone is able to show the full range of emotion, regardless of what their background, their role, their position in society, their gender. Um, so I think that's, yeah, a great jumping off point. If anyone wants to continue? I do, because immediately I came to think of Leandrin, where, you know, it was probably the one example that we have of toxic femininity in Wheel of Time, the show. And one, my favorite thing about this is that it's, first of all, it's not expected necessarily. And so when we see Leandrin being a hater, um, it's we don't, as the audience say, oh, of course she's being a hater. She's a woman. We say, oh, of course she's a hater. She's Leandrin, which is very, very different. Um, two, but we also see a reason for it. Whereas even, you know, in, you know, our lived experiences, my lived experience, when we come across, when I come across toxic femininity, a lot of what I see happening is that people blame it on that person being a woman. 
Whereas for Leandrin, we, you know, we kind of pick up things about it. Maybe, you know, she's abused as a child. Maybe, you know, she had, you know, really negative experiences with men growing up um, in terms of, you know, her projecting or her having it out for Moraine. It's not necessarily, I hate Moraine because I have some sort of internalized misogyny that I'm working with. I hate Moraine because I am jealous of Moraine. You know, Moraine has something that I want. Um, I don't trust her. And instead of dealing with that, you know, through healthy processes, I am going to internalize it and just kind of be nasty about it for lack of a better way to put it. Um, and, you know, we see how that affects, you know, probably her choice of Aja. We see how it affects how she, you know, works with her colleagues. We see how it, you know, affects um, her relationships with other people. Um, but even in that toxic femininity, we kind of see like pride in, you know, being a win, pride in her work, pride in being able to touch and use the source. Um, and so even in being toxic, there's nuance in that. And so, you know, typically, especially in superhero movies, you know, if a woman is being toxic, then that's all she is. Like, we don't get to explore that. We don't get to have a chance to understand it. But even Leandrin in maybe the 10, 20 minutes of screen time total she has this season, you know, it. she's still fascinating. You know, being rude, being bitchy is not all she is. Um, and I, I'm into it. I, I tend to like bitchy characters, bitchy female characters, like Azula from Avatar is my favorite character of all time. So <laughs> I kind of have a soft spot for Leandra, not going to lie. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, um, I like how when a woman in the show is misbehaving, she gets the same treatment that, you know, anti like male antagonists and other sources, source materials get to have. I'm wondering now if we're going to get a chance to meet any of the other red Aja. I'd like to. Because so far we only know Leandrin, and I'm wondering if her attitude towards men is, is typical of red Aja or if she stands out. One thing, one thing about um, her that I also really liked um, was in, in what you were saying about her being complicated is I also like to, when we see characters that are like that, get to see like how it also harms and isolates them and makes them also, and it also they tend to be hypocritical because of these worldviews that are so harmful to them that they it's no way to possibly ever live up to that like version of yourself because it, you're trying to enact a very harmful worldview upon the world. And so it's a very small moment, but there's a moment where Moraine sort of like to target at her says, oh, I know you go down and see that guy um, all the time, at, I think it's like the docs or whatever, but she sees a guy that's like not something that she's supposed to do. And it's sort of like it would if she if other red Aja learned that it would sort of ostracize them from them because it shows that she's a hypocrite. Um, and it, it 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 goes exactly to that worldview of like small moments like that showcase that these characters, when they have these worldviews are harmful to themselves, too, because they're trying to enact it. That doesn't excuse them from it. I'm not just saying saying like, yeah, because they're also harmed that we should overly empathize with them. But it just showcases that because that's often what you see when people enact very toxic worldviews. When we talk about like toxic femininity or toxic masculinity, those things are harmful to others. And that's the predominant way we should talk about them. But they're also harmful to people who enact them as well. 
um, and usually isolates them and, and things like that. So I, I liked, even though it was a small moment, I liked seeing that within the show. I have so many conflicting feelings about Leandrin. Um, I have a soft spot for her, which confuses me so much. But anyway, uh, moving on, um, I wanted to come back to something that Akila said about Swan and the range of representation that we get with her just in that one character. So it's one character in one episode. And my goodness, how rich it is. Right. So it's the humanizing um, of her character. And I think, Jesse, you might have uh, I might have got that term from one of your videos. But, you know, we see her as a child. Right. This this sweet child who is, you know, we don't know how long she's been raised by, you know, just her father and she's out there and she's helping him and she's being a fisher, a fisher, fisher, fisher child. Um, and we get that lovely cold open with her and her father. And then the next time you see her, it's, you know, in all her regal state um, as the as the flame of Tarvalon. And then again, we see her back in that um we're not entirely sure whether it's a Angriel to, uh, you know, a place in her hometown or whether it's some kind of alternate space between her and um, and Moraine. But again, in that very relaxed, um, you know, rap that she has and that intimate setting and then coming back into the hall and the entire sequence of the, you know, the incredibly emotional, dramatic wedding vows um, before Moraine is exiled. And also the scene between her and Nynaeve and Egwene with Moraine in the room as well. It's such an amazing expression of the writers to give such a, a deep character. And I just wanted to get some more thoughts upon her. And I also want to kind of put this out. How do we feel about the term mother? I know it's like this world's version of the Pope. And I have conflicting feelings about it. Like, I understand the honorific of mother I mean, obviously when I'm saying it with a capital M but there's also this is it is it an easy go-to to give the greatest honorific that somebody could have is mother um, and it's not in her capacity of having children but mothering the daughters right so all the Aes Sedai sisters and therefore the, the, the daughters of of the Amalin seat so I just want to open that up any thoughts around Swan I love Swan. Every time someone mentions Swan, I feel like the Kool-Aid man <laughs> bursting through the wall and I have to control my breathing. Um, <laughs> um, but speaking of the mother, it's funny because this was actually today's Mother Day, Mother's Day sermon in church um, about how being a mother is not the greatest thing a woman can be in life. Um, you know, my church does really quietly radical things sometimes and just go, <laughs> oh, okay. Um, but... Uh, I wonder, like, I remember the first time, like, I just kind of didn't register it because, um, you know, kings have been called fathers of countries, fathers of people in, in past situations and other contexts. Um, but one, I feel like being a mother kind of is different. And I think it's because, at least from my very American very African-American perspective, being a mother, just like being an auntie has a lot of cultural weight to it. And as much as, you know, we revere Mother's Day, like, you know, the classic, everybody always goes all out for Mother's Day, but, you know, fathers get like a gift card to, you know, base pro and call it a day. Um, <laughs> motherhood really isn't a respected 
like thing, like either as something you can be as an occupation, as an institution, at least in the U.S., like you people are expected to become mothers, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you are treated with the respect and the um, regard that role has. Um, and in the context of Wheel of Time, like bringing that in and seeing a black woman be called mother on one hand is like, wow, okay, this black woman has, you know, even though I don't think she's necessarily read as black in their universe, but I'm talking about me. Um, seeing someone being called mother, it's like, oh, wow, you know, she has this power. She has this regard. This is wonderful. On the other hand, a lot of the time being a mother is a setup. And so, you know, people put you on this pedestal and it's honestly constricting. It's very, um, it's very precarious. It's, it's kind of like people see you in that position and they like kind of, they have, they take it upon themselves to put expectations and burdens on you that, you know, if you fail to meet those expectations, if you fail to shoulder those burdens as, you know, they feel you should, you'll be punished for it. Um, and I don't like seeing a black woman in that position. Like I see that play out all the times, especially in the nonprofit world and it never ends well. Um, so, but I did like my second thought process or third, I don't know what number I'm on now, um, was I wonder where that comes from, you know, does, because we know in the show that the Tamerlan seat, um, wasn't, it wasn't necessarily something a woman could hold, or if it was, then it wasn't, it was joint. I'm not quite sure which way it goes. Um, but where does it come from calling the Amberlin seat mother? Is that something that's a holdover from another age? Is that something that's new to this age presently? Um, and why did we choose mother over, you know, queen, guide, protector, any any other epithet, I, I think. Um, I don't really know where I'm going with this. I don't think I am going anywhere with this. I'm kind of thinking out loud. No, I love it. I love where you're going with it. And it has actually just made me think, just based upon what you've said, if there was a male Amelin seat, would he be called father? That would be interesting thoughts. So I'll take that with a radio later. <laughs> that would feel very Catholic. Something, something, something that um, I just sort of thought about was just an interesting connection to the queer community because um, a lot of queer communities are about found families. Um, and something that you'd see if you, if anyone ever watched the series Pose, um, which is a very, very, very queer show. Um, one of the things that that showed was like the um, the ballroom culture in New York City in the 80s and into the 90s. And there are found families in that show, queer found families, and they do like make a point of calling the people at the head of those families mother. Um, and so I just thought about like, oh, this sort of like, found family aspect and nature of of the Aes Sedai um, and how you and how it does kind of have that sort of feeling of family to it that might be that could be read as almost um, uh, like religious-esque in a lot of senses because that religion also kind of does have that sort of like found family feel to it especially Catholicism um, does that a lot too in a very patriarchal way um, but also that it allows this sense of like more open 
family. So you have someone like Leander, who's like the one like annoying sister that you always have to deal with and things like that. Um, so I, I, it's interesting that you sort of like see it in that sense, because we also get a sense of too familiarity with like Moraine and I'm blanking on her name, but her uh, green Aja friend um, who we see who like they hang out in her room on her bed. Um, or is it Blue Aja? I forget. But she has the friend yeah, Alana, who they hang out and talk um, on. Thank you. very Thank you very much. Green. Yeah. Um, hang out in their bed and like just chat and like have conversations there. And it seems like a very open, familiar space uh, that is is just very um, casual. And I and I liked that sort of familial feeling to to what the I said I have built. So. Yeah, it does feel like they've like they all live in the tower together. That's their home. It does feel like it's designed to be a very familial structure. Um, and on the one hand, Samaria referred to motherhood as being, you know, precarious and constrained, which for me, to me, very much does describe Swan's position. I mean, she has to hide her partner from anyone else to make sure that no one knows. But I also wonder if you're talking about a culture where they've been almost wiped out and had to kind of rebuild their population. Maybe motherhood is a much more celebrated role in that environment. You know, maybe it is treated with much more respect than we treat mothers now. Yeah, I always saw it as as just a totally a power move because she gets to infantilize all of these women by calling them daughter. And I always just saw that as such a power move because she is at the top of the family structure, you know? She's a... Uh, the mother superior in this military convent magic school thing. So I had never thought of connecting it to like motherhood, motherhood. I really always saw it as just like this power move for her to keep people in line by calling them children. <laughs> um, but I mean, it, it is, it is interesting to compare the confinement of being the, the magic Pope versus how motherhood is, is treated like, in, in our our world. That that is an interesting comparison I had never thought of. So I'm just over here sitting with that and thinking about it. Akila, you wanted to say something? Yeah, so I think sort of just listening to all the different perspectives, um, I kind of feel sort of conflicted because I find myself thinking yes and then oh but no. So on the one hand, I liked initially the fact that, you know, the Amaryllis Sea is called mother and it's using mother in a different context in a kind of like, like Aradia said, like a power move, like a sort of empowering sort of way. And it broadens out the concept of motherhood, which is, you know, like Samaria said in the US, in the UK, it can, you know, mothers can be demonized, you know, if they're not working, single mothers, you know, stay at home mothers, they're all sort of demonized. So I like that kind of broadening of the term, this kind of empowering way. But then when I was watching the show and like the side die and they have to kind of, so like they, they, they hunt down probably is not the right term, but they go and search for Loghain, who is a potential dragon reborn, but then maybe not. And, you know, maybe he's mad and then they gentle him. Um, and so then that dynamic kind of felt quite patriarchal. And then also the dynamic of then, you know, the Amran and Seat and the Esedai having to sort of be the keepers of, you know, for thousands of years of looking out for these potential 
dragon reborns who basically are men who can channel who then basically don't think about anybody else in a way and sort of you know need to be sort of looked after or controlled or something and they have to kind of pick up the pieces sort of thing so that whole thing kind of felt like it was sort of patriarchal that the the women were given that kind of role that kind of caring role they've got to kind of sort out the mess of you know these men who have enormous power and don't take any accountability or responsibility for it um, and then actually even go mad with it and they, and not only do they have to kind of sort it out when those men appear but then you know, they have to live their whole lives thinking about, you know, like Moraine's whole sort of 20 year journey looking for these potential dragon reborns. And then finally she gets to two rivers and there's four potentials. And one of them could be a woman or no, two of them. Sorry, I'm, I'm forgetting. But so that kind of also felt a little bit patriarchal. So I feel sort of conflicted that actually it's positive, but then maybe it's also negative. It kind of feeds into that kind of patriarchal way of looking at the relationship between men and women in this world and their place in this world um or maybe it's just a reflection of what we see already in society i don't know so i'm kind of i have mixed feelings about it i mean it's interesting when you're talking about like readjusting a work of fiction from a male author right like this wasn't a series that was came from like a, a woman author or a you know a queer author initially, but it's having those perspectives being added to it um, in the adaptation. So it's always interesting to see how that sort of like shifting of things goes. Because one of the things that struck me initially in in the show was how there's still a very stark binary within this world. Um, like with the, they have like the very feminine, uh, uh, ritual that we sort of start off the show with of them being, um, like kind of baptized in a way, um, like going through the, the river. And then we sort of come and learn more about like the town, uh, that they come from. And you sort of seeing that there's this like very clear separation, like your men are not supposed to know what goes on there. And yet there's also a sort of equality in it too. Um, that we don't see in in our world today, like it's very hyper binarized, and yet also um, still like a much more sense of like these things are on the same level, as opposed to in our world today where we see sort of and we live in a very patriarchal world with masculine coded things are valued more by society. Um, but then also still sort of adding the like feminine mysticism to to things too. Like there's this sort of like air of mysteriousness that women hold. That is also still coming from a male viewpoint of like um, othering femininity. Um, so it's just it's interesting to sort of look at the show from perspective of like trying to re and we claims the wrong word because they're not sort of taking back from the author, but sort of like shifting his perspective into something to be a little bit more inclusive than he ever could be, given that he was just one person writing the book. Yeah, I often think that the number of profound internal conversations I've had with myself around Wheel of Time, plus all of the various podcast discussions and Discord discussions and all the conversations I've seen and participated in around Wheel of Time, there's so much like cool, progressive bullshit in this world breaking kind of stuff that emerges from those discussions that I feel like Robert Jordan would write a very, very different book today 
if he were to be able to revise his books. I don't think that he'd be happy with all the choices he made because he was pushing for something and doing it imperfectly. And like we can see where it would be if it was being written today. And I think that's a lot of what Rafe did with the show is like seeing that kind of like iterative process of like, okay, here's where Jordan started in the 90s. Here's where he ended up when Sanderson took over. Here's how we as a fandom have evolved. Here's how I as a single fan have evolved. Here's the logical next step along that more or less linear track. And that's what I feel like the show is doing and it's it's wonderful uh to see things like ooh that was a little cringe in book one do you think you could just tweak it and then hey you fixed it good job like it's not perfect but it's it's iteratively moving forward which i think is really amazing both in terms of robert jordan setting us up and in terms of us carrying the torch as a collective yeah i feel like akila and jesse have just blown my mind like so many th- Things have just like opened up and I'm like, oh my gosh, I didn't think about it that way. Yes, yes. We need to come back and we're going to have to continue this conversation every season. But like maybe in season three or four, we, I can talk about the things that just went poo in my head. Um, (laughs) But um, so yeah, so, you know, a question that we've asked before on this show um, and, you know, we can, we're already talking about this is, will the gender essentialism be updated for the show? And one, you know, one sense we could say yes, but I also feel like I was initially uncomfortable with episode one called Open with uh, Moraine as she's setting off on her journey. And, you know, the the whole voiceover that she does is that, you know, 3000 years ago, men tried to cage the dark one, the arrogance. Right. And you get pepperings of that arrogance throughout the season. And initially I was like, mm, I don't know how I feel about this. Um but then after speaking to my cousin, who's a huge wheelie as well, um, she made a really good point, which kind of resolved it for me, which is, you know, it's eight episodes. It's eight hours. It's season one. They have to really set up certain things very, very quickly, very visually. And they set up this gender essentialism. But that doesn't mean that's it. They've set it up. And the people that are showing it, they, they're also flawed. Like Moraine is flawed. Moraine herself says we have these prophecies. Do we really understand them? How many times have they been rewritten? How many times have all the records been destroyed every time there was a cataclysmic event? Um, so I went, you know, so the second time, well, probably the fifth time I watched it, um, you know, then I was able to kind of step back a little bit and and see it from the show perspective of they're showing it like this. And even the things that irritate me, they're meant, maybe that's meant to happen because it's showing the trajectory we could go with and with the radius saying, right, you know, how is it going to, how is it going to open up throughout the other seasons? And I do, I have complete faith in Rafe um, that we are going to get different representations just from what he's already shown us to do and from the things that he said. And we're going to get the nuance coming through, but I understand that they have to set up the kind of, you know, the binary structure to then kind of then go off and show all all the other varieties and nuance of that as well. And there are so many cultures that we have yet to meet. Um, so it's really exciting to see, you know, how how they will come up. So. Uh, it's me. You reminded me of like whenever I see fantasy things like this that are so rooted and even science fiction touches upon this, too, that are so rooted in like mysticizing a gender binary. 
Uh, it always makes me immediately, because of my perspective, uh, just like, well, what about trans people? Like, what what is, where do we fit into that discussion? Because uh, this show makes it very clear that, like, there is a different type of magic for men as there is for women. And, and the way that men's magic has been tainted makes them go mad, as we learn. Um, and it's like, well, what what about a trans femme person? Does a trans femme person, is she, you know, does she tap into male magic or female magic? What, uh, what, and then I also like to try to extrapolate out like what prejudices would there be stemming from that? Would like a trans femme person in this world, would that she tap into male magic and still go mad? And so there's people that say, you're not a real, uh, you're not a real woman. And so there's like that sort of like mirroring of what we see in sort of transphobia today. Or would there be someone who is a trans woman who would tap into female magic and people like being like, try to gatekeep that from them? It's like, you're not really like that. And and, and so like, there's interesting ways you could have the discussions about the real world, but then it's also problematic too in its base because it's still saying that like gender is, is not recognizing that gender already is a social structure within within our world. Like gender is a sort of made up thing that was built off of, especially today, like things like colonialism and capitalism. Um, and, and so our, our roles in those things are kind of made up. And so, and sort of interesting when you sort of mystify it essentially in, in that way. And I always sort of ask that question uh, of that. I think, um, I, I don't know if the books do it, but a book that did do it, um, that broke that down in an interesting way would be like Terry Pratchett in his equal rights book, um, in his Discworld books did a very similar thing with magic systems where he had male magic, female magic, but then he had a woman be given male magic and it exploded this whole idea of, um, that like, oh, it's actually just made up and men just gate kept that, that magic from women, but women can actually have it. Um, and so I'm interested to see if the show will, will explore any of that, especially with a more modern perspective that, you know, the book's probably didn't have um, because of the time in which they were written. So, so I'm going to try and do my best Ruach impression here and say, you raise some really interesting questions <laughs> <laughs> that, um, you know, we'll see. We'll see how... Uh, <laughs> That's that's a book reader. That's a book reader uh, face if I've ever seen one. <laughs> you know, let's, let's let's see. Let's wait and see. Or let's rafe and see, as we say in the fandom. Just put a pin in that and hold on to it. <laughs> but yes, um, great questions. <laughs> <laughs> makes, me, makes me upset I'm only on book three now because I'm curious. Anyways. Only 30 more to go. Jesse, I love that because we... Um, We've seen already that in different cultures, the source shows up, it's used differently. So, you know, we saw that at the very beginning in The Two Rivers, but then we see it in the last scene, in the last episode, the season finale, where people have enslaved, you know, a group of folks who can touch and use the source. And, you know, a big part of transphobia, like, and I'm speaking as someone very cisgender, so please forgive me, feel free to correct me, check me, whatever you need to do, um, is that it's very racist. And a lot of people don't clock that where, um, I'm so glad you mentioned colonialism because, you know, I remember growing up when Sierra and Nicki Minaj were first coming onto the scene, a big thing that was rampant in the black community, even when I was in elementary school, was that, oh, they're not really women. They're actually really guys. You know, these are trans women. And it's because of how they presented themselves. It was because of their aesthetics. It was because, you know, Sierra is very athletic. You know, she grew up in Atlanta, you know, 
her gender performance reads in a lot of circles as very masculine, even in black circles. And Nicki Minaj, you know, she's just very brash. She's very loud. You know, she's a very unapologetic person, regardless of how you think of her. Um, you know, a lot of her mannerisms, a lot of her personality traits are very much coded masculine. Um, and, you know, that when it comes to transphobia, it's even not like not even now, just historically. And I'm thinking, you know, 1700s, 1800s, a big part of, you know, of racism, especially misogynoir, was your your culture your, um, you know, the tribe you come from, the nation you come from, it's not performing gender the way that our white colonial imperial power believes that gender should be performed. Therefore, you're not a woman or therefore you may be a woman, but we can, we can um, enact violences against you that we would not absolutely would not do against women in our own, in our own culture as you know this white power because because you know they're white you're not their gender performance is how we expect it how we want it how we structured it to be um and i'm just really fascinated how that will play out what we'll see especially taking you know those enslaved women into account um how how the source and gender plays out when we're not thinking of the two rivers or we're not thinking of, I always call it the ivory tower, the ivory tower um, at the center of the city when we're not thinking of cultures that we deem familiar, even in the meta sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting because like you, you're sort of saying, uh, talking about like the colonialist aspects of it, like the important thing to always recognize with stuff like gender and transphobia is it does directly come from from racism like the way that our gender structures exist now wasn't just like white European powers coming in and saying like, oh, you don't fit our gender structures. It was actually those gender structures were created to uh, delineate against, um, you know, the, the people that they were colonizing. They sort of said like, well, we need to justify um, black women and black men being enslaved. So we'll sort of create these gender structures and sort of place them against like white women who will say is fragile, soft and, and weak um, and then sort of say like, oh, black women are like, they're rougher and tougher so they can do the work of like a slave. Um, and so the, it, like gender roles are inherently racist in their base. Um, like, so while I, and something that I always say is like, I, as a trans white person, like, I guess I do get, um, you know, marginalized, marginalized as a trans person, but I am not the predominant like person being harmed by gender roles. That would be people of color and trans people of color. Um, the reason I bring all that up in here is exactly how you were saying within the show is like, it's something that I always think about with fantasy when you have these sort of things. It's like, do the, do the writers ascribe, um, do the writers ascribe the things that were made up in our society today to some sort of inherent mysticism, magicalness about the world? Like we see with the like different versions of gender power within the world, or do they understand that it does come out of the societal structures that are that are we build up in our world today and so i'm really curious to see as the seasons go forward since we do know like you said that there are slaves in this world is that going to be connected in any way to to the magic system into the way that this world has been segregated in different ways i'm, I'm very very curious about that yeah they're doing the show on easy mode for sure you know 
<laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, I think that's a really um, interesting set of points that you raised, Jesse and uh, Samaria, about the relationship um, between, I guess, white structures and the rest of the world. And, you know, from the fantasy that I've read beyond the Wheel of Time and the shows that I've watched, you know, sci-fi, I feel like it is very much premised on kind of white structures being the norm and then that's being taken out to other cultures. Um, and I was reflecting on the Wheel of Time and its intersection of gender and race and how I, the Wheel of Time show and how I feel about it. Um, and I think at the moment I'm still very much, let's wait and see, because I think it'd be very interesting to see how the show kind of depicts that dynamic. But I think it, I, I don't know if this is intentional or not, if, you know, if, if Rafe has done this intentionally, but I think the relationship between Moraine and Nynaeve is very interesting from a kind of race dynamic. Because I feel like, you know, Moraine came in as this authority and she's coming as very much like, my way is the right way and is kind of like the only way. And that's the way that you should take in terms of channeling, you know, the one power and magic and what have you. And then Nynaeve has got her sort of seemingly two rivers, maybe a little bit backwards way of the wisdom. And obviously she's a person of colour. Um, and then we see actually in that brilliant show, which actually for me, I think was my favorite episode where Nynaeve heals Lan and she heals all the other SI die when, um, after Loghain hurts them. And yeah, and it was really like a boom moment. Um, and there you see actually suddenly she's, she's so powerful and her way, albeit uncultured, unrefined, whatever, you know, all those kind of subtle references that have come from Moraine throughout the um, season suddenly was just blown out of the water and it didn't matter anymore. And Nynaeve suddenly had all this power and then we got to see actually maybe there is something about her way and just the rawness of it and the power of it. So I don't know if it's intentional or not, but I feel like through that relationship, they've sort of represented or depicted a little bit how the you know the kind of real world relationship between sort of people who embody I guess white structures and that doesn't mean white people only because you know I think you know I'm white privileged and I think you know living in western societies we can all embody some of that and then uh, and especially in, in our interactions with other cultures and then this kind of you know sort of disadvantaged you know woman of colour because she comes from a village and whatever, whatever. So I'm just I'm just wondering if that was on purpose or not. But either way, I think it's good that it's been shown in that way so far. But I'm interested I, I think they could do so much more with it. And I'm interested to see just generally how um the relationships between the kind of recognized, you know, established sort of SI die and kind of that kind of structures within this wheel of time uh series are then shown in the show and how they interact with the other 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 cultures that they might come across. Yeah, Keela, I I never saw Maureen in that perspective before, but I think it's really interesting. Um she is the 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 white Gandalf saviour figure, right? The guide that comes in to this village of mostly people of colour, uh, except for the, you know, the the very white redhead that stands out. Um, and nobody notices that he stands out so much. Um, but um, but I find really interesting that we have, so you have Moraine in the way that you've just described. Um, 
she's the on the road power, right? That she's out of the tower. But in the tower, then we have Swan, who is who is the top dog. And it makes me think again about the scene that I've referenced before on the show that I absolutely love, which I think is another, I want to say, intentional display of showing these power dynamics in a different way, which is a scene between um, when Swan meets Nynaeve and Egwene and Maureen is the silent figure standing by the door. That scene very prominently centres the the women of colour and it centres women of colour with power. So you have Swan meeting the most powerful channeler in a thousand years. And you have that really sweet moment where Egwene thinks it's her and it's not. It's it's Nynaeve. Um, <laughs> and it felt so bad. Yeah. But that entire interaction between them, right, there is this suspicion of you you are a woman in power that is in the literal ivory tower, as Samaria says, this white institution that takes women from different cultures and tries to make a uniformity in a sense. That no matter where you come from around around the world, once you come to the tower to train, you will train in our way and you will learn to channel our way, which is quite limiting because they all channel with their hands. And we learned that that's, you know, not the only way to do it. Um, I mean, for goodness sake, Nynaeve channels with her braids, you know, how much more awesome can you get? Um, but so I, I I love that you've brought this up about Maureen because I'd. I hadn't thought about it, but I do think there are aspects where they are being quite intentional in showing different power dynamics. Um, and I just want to tell everyone, just go watch that scene again with Swan and the girls. And I just think it's so beautifully done. Acting, direction, just, yeah, mm, yummy. Yeah, I think another part of what's interesting, particularly with Swan and that scene, um, is how much like classism gets brought into it. Because you remember in episode one, Nynaeve accuses Moraine of representing an order that only lets rich women in. And then we see Swan's story, clearly not a rich girl, right? Like she barges up on a pole, on a pole bar she probably made herself, you know, and now she's literally the most important person in the world. So clearly there's some incongruity in terms of how wealth and class are perceived in from Moraine's, you know, obviously like high lady, fancy horse, you know, high French, you know, attire, like all of that stuff. And then the the backwards country folk that have their like country bumpkin ways and barely see a gold mark in a year and all of that. Like there's some real lack of communication happening there that we see like there's a direct count, uh, contradiction in the show that I won't say that it wasn't in the books discussions of class, but I feel like they're, you know, bringing it up from like book nine or whenever they actually start to make it clear. And they're bringing that conversation farther forward and setting us up to really see that class is a part of this and that it also isn't like, is, is the white tower a classless group? Are they a different kind of elitist? Like what, where does the elitism come into play with them? Where does it not come into play? It's, there's so many questions that we have. But yeah, when Lorraine just rolls up, like, yeah, I'm the rich person. I know everything. I went to an Ivy League. Um, you know, just bring, give me your children and let me go on my way. And, and and then also seeing that, yeah, the woman that she is subservient to, like, was a, a fisherman's daughter. 
and that's her entire identity. So, you know, we've got racism, we've got sexism, and we've also got classism. We've got the whole trifecta. Would it be a show without all? <laughs> we no. need everything. Let's cover it all. <laughs> but so on this, you know, Aes Sedai, elitism, classism, and then the fear and suspicion that goes into, you know, people that are coming from this tower. Um, how do we... So we've seen the reds, the blues and the greens predominantly so far. And we get an idea of the differences between their Aja, what their focus is. Um, and I'm just going to bring up something that Jessie said in one of her videos. So the reds are a bit more discriminatory, right, against not just men, but maybe just generally. Um, and uh, the blues are like the Coat uh, Milat, the Romulan warrior nuns. I love that. <laughs> I love that reference for those of you who have watched our trick. Um, yes, totally. The blues are definitely the Romulan warrior nuns. Um, but then we have this contrast between the warders and the Aes Sedai. So, you know, the Aes Sedai, they're up to their necks in politics and machinations and keeping, you know, the alliances and who's what. Maureen can be a bit out of it when she's on the road, but that doesn't mean that she's not being affected by the politics, even when she's on the road. You know, because Stepin makes that comment to Lan that, you know, the Amelin seat's really, really pissed at Moraine. And she, she said something about, you know, dragging you back physically. Um, and at the warders, they don't have to, and we touched upon this, I think it was in uh, the last episode when we did the, the Green Aja and their warders. The warders kind of seem to keep out of it. Um, and yet all the relations, relationships do seem to have, they are full of heart and depth. You know, the relationship between Maureen and Alana has heart and depth. You could say the relationship with Maureen and Leandrin has depth. Um, there's something there, you know. And, and and certainly some a lot of emotional tension. Definitely. Whatever that emotion might happen to be. Right. Yeah. So so it's that tension that I wanted to bring up, right? So you have the tensions around politics, but also is this just something is it just politics or is this just is this just I Sedai, right? There are tensions abound in the tower, whether it's sexual, whether it's political, you know, all of these, it feels very tight and high wire, whether you're in the, you're in the hall or you're in the corridors. And previously we've touched upon, you know, a lot of conversations have happened in the hall, in the corridors of the White Tower, the corridors of power, right? There's a lot of stuff that happens there. Is, you know, what do we feel about the deliberateness, deliberateness, deliberate? of this um, and what perspective do we have on it? One thing that uh, this is slightly tangent from that but it's on it's on that topic um, but I just you just made me think about the warders within that and how they all, they have a place that is typically reserved for like women in most fictions because we see in this sort of like seat of power there's all these politics going on we get the scenes with the warders who are just men who are off to the side and they have like their own little like conversational circle that is them sort of talking about the goings on of all the women in in the series and so they're like changing cost they're like ch like changing costumes changing their outfits while also talking about the different women of power that they they work for which reminds me of how often we'll see in many more like other shows we'll see that be reserved for like women and servants roles how they'll be sort of like off to the side uh gossiping about all the men that get to have the goings on around around them and it was just so cool to see a room full of very strong, like very masculine, like warrior men 
kind of fulfilling that same role within these sort of very politicized political storylines that is usually reserved for for women um, and the lower class. So uh, it's a little bit of a tangent from what you were just saying, but it just like made me think about like how I thought that was really cool to see like the warriors get to kind of fulfill that role within this political game. And also the nurturing role. So they're the ones who mm -hmm. are taking care of the women who are making the decisions and, you know, uh, going into battle and mm -hmm. they're the, they're the, the caretakers and the emotional support, which is very much a role reversal. Yeah, with the white tower, I can just never get over. Like it's, it's an ivory tower where, where the red and the blue are fighting over who gets to control the world. I just, I can never not see that <laughs> as being, you know, an American. It's just, yes, this, this white house on a hill that only very special people get to go into where the, the red and the blue parties are just at each other's throats and everyone else can, can suck it. You know, <laughs> um, it's, it's fun to see all the politics getting fleshed out in the world, to see the halls of power, to get the walk and talk that like you're used to seeing in like, you know, some, it's just the political, the halls of power walk and talk is such a trope. It's fun to see it in in this fantasy world that I know so well. And I got to say, the White Tower was one of the sets that was more like what I imagined in my head. I don't have the greatest imagining for how the books look, but just the echoing white hallways. And then to have that tension in that was just so like, it's Wheel of Time. It's really Wheel of Time. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's just inside. It's just an inside walk and talk with all this political tension. But um, I like it. <laughs> Well, you just made me think, like, with, with that, like, if we're going to draw direct parallels to uh, America, uh, like, the the fact that, like, and I, I don't know if the show directly shows this, but I know in the books it's, it's this isn't really a spoiler, it's just a map, but, like, these the way the city looks like it looks like a <laughs> vagina. I mean, that's just what it is. But then you have the tower being a very big phallic mm -hmm. symbol. Uh, in the middle of uh, in the middle of the space, which is just sort of like a feels to me like a very coded reference to things like like the big ornate like White House and Senate building that we need to have these big huge ornate structures that seem like um uh you know placements of ego um within our world and sort of again the show coding that in very like clearly whether it was intentional or not like American ways as well as very like gender binarized uh, way or at least biological gender binarized ways. Um, and so that's very interesting sort of uh, thought that you just made me connect with like American politics. <laughs> so. It's just like the shape of the island. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Sorry, I'm just I was gonna bring it back to something else, but now I'm just like, hmm, okay, conversation about the vagina island or not? Hmm. Yes. Hey, it, is a, <laughs> it has to be brought up there. Absolutely. The Make all the jokes about the North Harbor. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, just to add to that, I just want to say that um, Tarvalon was built in the shadow of Dragon Mount, Dick Mountain, and Vagina Island. Yep. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't say. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, but actually, um, Jesse, something that you said that made me think uh, about the about the warders and their role. So they wouldn't they wouldn't pass the Bechtel test. Hmm. Mm. Interesting. In this show, right? Let's see. If there ever is a conversation with the waters where it's not about their eyes to die or somebody else's eyes to die. It's actually kind of cool. I didn't even think about that. It yeah. just came to so me. So there was the conversation about, about, there was the story about land falling off his horse. Mm. But then it was very quickly the followed by one. the eyes to die. Yeah. 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 
And, and we kind of came in at the end of that story and then it immediately shifted back to the Aes Sedai. <laughs> um, oh, look what we're <laughs> There it is, there it is. <laughs> so we were all looking at a visual of Tavalon. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to leave any comments about North Harbour and South Harbour to anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I could say they're a lot easier to they're a lot easier to find than people. I mean, one could say that all islands look like this, and yet I think Jordan did it deliberately. I studied geography, I just, geology. I can assure you, not all islands look like this. <laughs> okay, the, the geologist has spoken. Okay, I'm a brown aja. Yeah. Like I can just tell you, you know, like <laughs> I, I, yeah, I just think that Jordan just got a lot of lot of giggles out of that one. Um, I mean, talk about gender essentialism. It's just really in your face. Yeah. So, I want to ask about something kind of very tangentially related. Um, <laughs> halls of power and all the political tension. Can we talk about the the politics in the sauna scene? Because I loved that scene so much. Um, and it, yes, the the criticisms of new. Uh, this is not nudity. This is people in a sauna. It's bringing the the. I, I loved the casualness of it for them in world, and I also was was horrified, delighted by how many people thought it was it was sexualized. It's like nudity is not sexual. I have male friends who didn't even realize. Yeah, like they missed the boobs. Right, they missed it was it was so well done that they actually missed the boobs. You know. And they're like, what, where, where was that? What, what scene was that? I mean, I didn't miss the boobs, but I'm queer. But um, <laughs> like I grew up in a very like free family. And this is probably because I grew up around pretty much exclusively women um, where nudity didn't really track for me. Like I was in middle school before I realized that my peers were very much like, oh, no, I have to cover up. I can't get dressed in front of other people. They can't see me naked. Like, I grew up with, like, my cousins walking in when I'm on the toilet, when I'm in the shower. Like, I didn't really grow up with a concept of nudity being inherently sexual, which nowadays people get in trouble for that. But I'm glad I grew up in the 90s where, you know, I got to enjoy this this idea without, you know, parents, you know, getting CPS sicked on them um, because it, it's not like that. And that scene, one, I enjoyed just because it did reveal something of a caste system. And so I was just kind of fascinated by that. Um, in the, in the white tower, um, I also enjoyed it, you know, because, you know, the nudity made sense for the context and like to this day, for whatever reason, Hollywood has a hard time with figuring out when and where nudity is appropriate. And on one hand, this has led to, you know, cinema being very desexualized. And on the other hand, we have the, you know, what I call the euphoria extreme where, you know, there's just tits and ass like everywhere for no real reason. Like it does not make sense for the characters. It doesn't make sense for the story. It doesn't make sense for the scene. It's just a shock value. And then we have Wheel of Time on Amazon Prime where, you know, we get nudity. Um, we get it. I wouldn't really call it nudity, but we get, you know, 
a man and a woman sharing a bath and it's like brother and sister. It's like when I was thrown into the tub with my God, my God brother when we were two. And you know, that's that's the vibe it has. And then we have another scene where they're in this sauna and yes, there are mostly naked women, but they're working. Like they're naked because it is 95 degrees Fahrenheit in this in this context and wearing real clothes would be, you know, punishment. Um and but you know there's the just the camera you know the camera focus and the angle like just the way this scene is literally set up from a visual point of view which I think is a bit redundant but hopefully I make sense when I say that um like it's you the camera is not zooming in and focusing on you know a pair of breasts you know it's not about that they're just in the background doing their job they're kind of fuzzy actually to the point where Simon apparently didn't notice um and you know there's nothing in that scene the conversation where the two main characters in the scene's eyes are tracking where they're taking notice and therefore you don't take notice. And I just, I just really thought that scene was just well done from a cin cinematography point of view. Yeah. I noticed on the second time round when I got past the politics. But as Aradia said, you know, it's another example of politics happen everywhere, right? It, 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 when you're in those positions of power, it never ends. And it's Maureen who asks to meet the head of her Aja there. Right. I mean, Mike and she says, you know, could we not meet somewhere else? It's like, oh, give me a break. I'll be on the road for two months, you know, and that's it. It's just that natural. And it's like, right, they get back onto onto the politicking and then the yellow Aja send their little, you know, signal for Maureen and Mike catches it. It's just so rich in that sense. And, you know, so this brings up another perspective for us to maybe discuss is the male gaze. Right. And how the show seems to be really flipping it on its head. I mean, we have we have Lan, we have a lot of Lan, um, and then we we have Rand and Egwene, but really it's Rand, I think, that's showing the most skin there. Then I'll come back to the Egwene scene, but then we have um, Nynaeve and Lan, so a lot of Lan again there, and uh, and then the, the scene just cuts to Nynaeve doing up her braid, uh, and if I may, may say so, not looking like she enjoyed it. I mean, come on, just a moment, just a moment of of happiness before we go back to the stress of we're, we might die tomorrow. Um, but the Egwene abuse scene. So, so with all the others, right? It's a real flipping of um, of the sex and nudity and what we expect. With Egwene's abuse scene, that is doubling down on the horror. And making it in a completely non-sexual way to the point where, you know, like I was so tense. I was I was literally tense watching that scene. Part of me the first time around was worried where it was heading, like because I didn't know. I didn't know where this scene could head. And then every, every time since I've watched it, I'm still tense because it's so amazingly done. You know, and you can tell that a lot of time and care and effort was put in with the actors and the director in making that scene present itself exactly the way it is, which is horrific and uncomfortable. And you really feel like you can, I, I really, you know, when Egwene's being scrubbed, I feel, feel those hard bristles. It's so well presented and it's very quick and yet it's incredibly impactful. 
You um, you just made me think because um, I'm gonna put my my film student cap on for a hot second because when we talk about the male gaze, one thing that people often um misunderstand when we talk about like trying to subvert the male gaze is the way the male gaze works is it objectifies anyone that isn't like usually this cis straight white dude. So anyone else in in a movie is seen as other. Typically, women get to be sexualized and seen as other, but literally everybody, whether they be a person of color, whether they be trans, whether they be queer, gets to be seen as something different. And so the camera treats them as like a thing that we need to learn about because they aren't assumed to be the naturalized viewpoint of, of the filmmaker. But when people say, oh, you subverted the male gaze, what they typically think is like, oh, they just shift that perspective to a woman, typically a white woman too, but shift that gaze to a woman to then otherize um, men in the same way. But that's still doing the same thing. And so when we talk about a male gaze, the way that I like to sometimes think about it is more of less of a male gaze and it, call it more of an individual gaze that is often typically essentialized in men because of the way that Hollywood and things have structured it to that put men in the filmmaker role and assuming that the audience is also the filmmaker and the camera takes the viewpoint of that. What I love about The Wheel of Time and what, how you actually subvert a, a male gaze and try to do something different, and we see this in, like, there's a few shows that are doing this today. Since I'm a Trekkie, I'll say Star Trek Discovery, I think, does it as well quite well. But this show does it, too, is that when you want to talk about a feminine gaze, what you would really want to talk about is, like, a more um, shifting collective gaze. So over the course of the show, you'll see other people get to take the centralized role of the camera and assumed audience and see other people as others. It's not saying that we never see anyone as an other, as different, but that that perspective shifts throughout the series and throughout a work of, of art. Um, and so with that scene, like when we see like men being seen as sexual in the show, but sometimes we don't see men as sexual, sometimes we see women as sexual. Sometimes we identify with the woman getting abused um, in different ways. And so... It's just putting on my filmmaker cap. It's just something that thing I had to think about with this show. And I think the Wheel of Time does that really, really well of allowing shifting perspectives instead of it coming into one singular perspective, which is um, evidence from the book itself, too, right? Because the book itself has multiple perspectives. But even that was filtered through a male perspective. So even when women were written in the book, they were sort of written sometimes in not intentionally, I'm sure, but in very sexist ways. So this show, having multiple creators, but also multiple viewpoints per, and, and um, protagonists, allows for that. And I think that's really cool. I think that particular scene with Egwene, I think one of the reasons that that really works so well for me is because the people who are scrubbing her are treating her as an object. But we're seeing it from... Egwene's perspective, not from the perspective of the men who are, are, are the people who are holding her and, and washing her, but from her perspective as the person who's going through this horrific experience. And it's completely non-sexualized. There's nothing erotic about it. I think one, I think one of the best examples, too, of a similar scene for that idea, too, is, um, sorry to make connections, but I often find it's, it's useful to highlight other ones that do it. But um, Birds of Prey, if anyone's ever seen that movie, did the same thing with another abuse scene where you got to, like, not sexualize the abuse scene in that. And I think that, that just sort of showcases like the ability for filmmakers to have multiple, like different perspectives than what we've been taught to see the perspective as. So. Jesse, I was just thinking, I can't wait for you to meet some brown, brown Aja sisters on the show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited too. It should be fun. I feel like that's probably where I would be. If I, if I wasn't, if I wasn't a, um, a blue, then I would probably be a brown. <laughs> So much I could say, but uh, 
I shan't. <laughs> Radio knows. <laughs> so another um, perspective I wanted to bring in as well, and we've touched upon it already with positive masculinity, um, is Tam as the caring soldier. Um, and connecting to uh, Shail or Tigraine, as she's credited in the show, the pregnancy scene, right? So there are so many amazing dynamics at play with with the representation of Tam, not just in that scene, but also at the beginning in the first episode as Ran's father, you know, taking that real central role there. He gets a, some of the you know most amazing Wheel of Time lines to say uh, about the world building. Um, and just his presence on screen as the father, as 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 the first guide, and then the protector with Shail and that pregnancy scene. So I wanted to put that out there. Thoughts around around Tama and Shail individually together. I mean, it's it's amazing that you have two warriors meeting on the field of battle and then bringing new life into the world. Life that is, you know, ostensibly supposed to save the world. We'll see how that plays out. But like ostensibly to save the world, um, these people that are on opposite sides that suddenly unite in the face of something much more humanizing than all of these political war things. Now we have like baby birthing to get through and like we're teammates on that. Um, I love, I mean, I wasn't a huge fan of Game of Thrones, but I love the weirdness of the casting of Tam. Just like from worst dad ever to best dad ever. And then he gives that line about like, well, maybe we can do again, you know, in like a different turning of the wheel. And I'm like, the amount of meta in this moment is <laughs> painful. Um, you know, I, I love I love that Rand like has this really positive, uh, nurturing male role model. Um, you know, spoilers, but Rand has a bit of a journey to go through. And it, there's a few bumps along the way. So it's it's nice just to... A, just a few. Just a couple. Just a, several, a dozen books worth of bumps. It's fine. Um, but he has the basis of this nurturing, caring, multifaceted uh, man who's gone out into the world and, like, seen some shit and then come home and chosen to return to this, like, isolated cozy life you know he had a wife who was a hard drinker like there's so much about tam that he's not a one-dimensional character and it bodes well for rand i think that he comes from a place of not just like generic farm boy 37 right he has a father with like a story like a story that guy has a whole set of novellas about his story clearly right there i think that's cool and I find it really interesting some of the uh, conversations around in the fandom about um, the pregnancy, you know, Rand's, Rand being birthed scene. Um, and again, really interesting that it's mostly um, the non-female, non-feminine identifying folks who are like, oh, that was, you know, ridiculous. That, would, that wouldn't be realistic at all. You know, she's about to give birth and she's fighting. And uh, most of the women that I've heard saying, that's exactly what pregnancy is like. I haven't gone through labor. So, but I've had uh, friends tell me, yep, that pretty much summed it up. <laughs> so again, you know, interesting perspectives of people who, you know, just uh, maybe romanticize what labor might be like. And then those who have actually gone through it and be like, yep, bloody and sharp and stabby. That pretty much describes it. <laughs> 
that's happened to people, honestly, giving birth in the middle of conflict, in the middle of escaping conflict, like it happens all the time. And like it's happening now in, in Ukraine, if that's the most familiar conflict people have, like I can't tell you how many articles I've read about people giving birth in the middle of, you know, bombs being, you know, thrown down on their, you know, wherever they're taking shelter in Ukraine. And that doesn't even, you know, consider like other war zones and other conflict zones. And so like, I kind of like, get really aggravated about comments where, you know, oh, that's unrealistic when it talks about an experience that's so gendered, like pregnancy and childbirth, because um, it's one of those situations where real life is absolutely stranger than fiction and where fiction usually can't come close to reality. This is a tangent, but I just had to say something about it. No, I agree. I mean, I also find I also find people who yell about like realism in a show with like fantasy magic and like m like monster stuff. I'm like, OK, uh, this is the part that you're getting hung up on. Then I feel like there's a deeper there's a deeper thing that you're 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 not self-analyzing about yourself, about why this is the thing that you're going to you're going to you're going to uh, put yourself up on. But also, like, it does make sense because, like, there are things I people in real life have done similar things. Um, and especially with the the Aiel and how much we learn, like how trained they are. Like, I feel like this is one of the more realistic things to be seen. And I will say that scene for me particularly, I think, is like the standout scene of the entire show for me. Like that whole sequence was like, oh, this even if the the show is the rest of the show is not bad. But if the rest of the show is absolutely terrible, we got this scene. Then I was like, it would all be worth it because it was just really wonderful to see a badass warrior doing like just murdering, straight up murdering and killing everybody in a way that we don't really get to see women do. But then doing that also during childbirth, another, uh, you know, trans men and non-binary people can also get pregnant. But a thing that's very essentialized in like femininity and, and womanhood often by our society today and mixing that in with like something that's also very masculine, aggression, angry coding. So like taking life and giving life at the same time, I thought was just such a great um uh, symbolic evocation of what this whole series is kind of about, I think was just a, a cool visual way to do all of that. I feel like the show's packed in so much. <laughs> um, because, I mean, like all the different things that we've spoken about just on this podcast and like, how do they manage to do that? I'm really like in awe of how the writers intentionally sat down and interwove all of these different representations and depictions and, 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 and in a nuanced way as well. I mean, I think that's amazing. I mean, like, yeah, there's some things I don't like or, you know, I wouldn't have done that way, but, you know, I'm not a filmmaker. Well, I'm not a TV showmaker, but you know what I mean? Another aspect I wanted to bring up as well, we've, we've kind of, you know, we've touched on the hall and um, the gloriousness uh, of all the Aes Sedai's and their costuming. Um, but beyond that, the gloriousness of the actual Aes Sedai, the variety of them, shapes, sizes, ages, um, colours, um, heights. Um, I know some people complained about Maureen uh, not being short enough, but for goodness sake, we have Rosamund Pike. She, she, <laughs> I mean, Maureen towers over everyone in this each scene that she's in in the books anyway. Now we have a physical representation of that. Um, so I... Coming back to the to the sitters and the Aes Sedai, one thing um, I absolutely loved, and again, we've touched upon this before, I wanted to bring it up again, is um, the representation, but also um, the awesome red hijabi sister. 
Now, I did um, some amateur level digging into trying to find her name, uh, the name of the actor, uh, and I couldn't find it. Uh, I'm going to take that as a positive and think that uh, that means that she's coming back as a named Aes Sedai. We'll see more of her. But I um, I have uh, previously uh, recited odes to the gloriousness of her red hijab and the way it flowed out of the hall and we get that glorious, you know, shot from above as she's sweeping out. And, um, you know, I have family members who wear hijab and who watch the show and that's what they were sharing. They were like, oh my goodness, there's somebody in a fantasy show that looks like me. And I think it's amazing to see somebody who, for whatever reasons, they're wearing a headscarf. But for um, for women in the real world who wear headscarves for religious or cultural reasons, to see representation in a fantasy show where it's not about doing it for our real world religious or cultural reasons. You know, there was a casting call out that went out for a red sister um, and somebody who might wear a headscarf was able to turn up for it. And she got it because she was an awesome actor. Right. And she was able to incorporate that into her design in such a beautiful way. Um, I like Red Sisters for lots of reasons, but I really, really stan this Red Hijabi Sister, as she will be called until I find out what her name is. But um, thoughts about uh, thoughts about that, and I'm going to throw to Akila um, for thoughts as a hijabi-wearing person. Yeah, I completely agree. And my only criticism, if any, is that we didn't get to see more of her or hear from her. We didn't get to physically hear from her. And I really hope that um, the producers bring her back and we get to see her more and we get to hear from her. But again, I really like the way it was done in that it wasn't like she, she didn't sort of stand up and say, I'm a red sister and I wear hijab. You know, it, it, like how some shows do when they're trying to do, as I, I spoke about earlier, when they're trying to do that whole representation thing, tick box thing, it was just, she was just very natural. And I actually didn't pick up on it straight away because it felt so natural. And then I sort of picked up on it. And then when I sort of, you know, went on the kind of Facebook groups and, you know, all the kind of to see the chatter, then I was like, oh, actually, people are making a big deal out of this in different ways. Some not as positive. But, you know, I thought I thought it was really good and really important because often when so, you know, sometimes I, I have watched Star Trek. I'm not as much of, of a fan, but sometimes when I've seen other cultures possibly from this world depicted in Star Trek, it's done, I feel, in a kind of otherized way. So I felt this was kind of done in a more seamless way. It wasn't like, oh, we visited, um, basically, I'm, I'm going to stop there in case I give a spoiler. But, it, you know, uh, I think it would be really nice to see how this develops, um, <laughs> you know, in, in, the, in the next seasons. And I really hope we see more of her. And more of this kind of, representation yeah yeah that's totally we need to get a movement going for you know bring back red hijabi sister but i also want to say that you know not only was she a hijabi perceived hijabi uh, person she was a darker colored um actor as well which is we've talked about colorism on previous episodes i just want to do a shout out for that as well and also in the hall we also have a blue sitter and a gray sitter who are wearing different variations of headscarf. And I love the fact that we're getting different styles of headscarf as well. And I'm really excited to see, does that tie into the, the country they come from, the culture they come from, subcultures within the countries that they come from? There's so much that could be said about that. And I really hope that we will, we will see that going forward. 
So since you brought up Star Trek, and I'll I'll <laughs> I'll say this, um, you are absolutely correct. Like that is that is the main problem, especially with older Trek, is that it otherizes other cultures as alien. And it's like, oh, we have the like straight cis white dude Picard or whatever Kirk going around uh, and going to other cultures and like seeing them as as aliens, um, as opposed to like getting to exist themselves. And what I'm loving more about um, what we're seeing in filmmaking today, more and more and more, is evidenced by this is that we're getting to see, like, maybe other cultures, like, using, like, if we're using fantasy worlds or alien cultures and things like that, they'll draw from multiple different sources and also sometimes be critical of our own uh, sort of Western culture as well, using alien culture, which I like seeing more and more, and then allowing people of diverse backgrounds to be present within the, like, main-centered culture of the show, as we see with, like, hijabi-wearing people within the Wheel of Time. But it still has a little bit of ways to go because while they are included in the cultural viewpoint that we're given of the show, they are not often centralized as the protagonists um, of that culture. So I like seeing that we're getting to see culture not coded as other eyes, but as part of the dominant culture or at least the perspective culture of, of a series, but needing that to be moved forward into the perspective of the actual lead characters, which I think is... Uh, Something that I think I, is the next step, I think, for a lot of filmmaking to do, including Star Trek as a big Trekkie. So. Yeah, I, like I said, we won Watt Spoilers. We went through the hall costumes a lot in exhaustive detail. And yeah, I loved seeing multiple headscarves. It wasn't just one, you know? It's like we don't just have one woman. We don't just have one person of color. We don't just have one headscarfing person. It's just scattered about throughout. And also something that we did... Um, was attempted to go through who we know is in the hall at that point in the timeline in the books and tried to guess who those sisters are because some of the sitters do have more to do in the plot as you go on. So I was trying to see which of them, you know, maybe this is character X who comes up in book six and like makes shit go boom and it's very, very cool. And anticipating which one of those sisters might that might be maybe it's none of them um we don't know but i the amount of beautiful costuming in that scene and the gorgeousness of the the red hijabi sister in particular it's like please let her be character x please 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 let her be character x because <laughs> there's potential there and i i'm so excited and i'm also really interested to see if they have the headscarves being more of a personal thing or more of a cultural thing because we know that they're going with the accent of the first actor from a nation is going to dictate the accent for the nation. I think I read that in an interview somewhere. I'm very curious how much that applies to the costuming. If you have like a woman bringing or a person bringing a headscarf into her role, does that mean that her the whole nation she represents is going to do that or not? Like, I want to go on a cross-country road trip through the show's version of Randland <laughs> and see all <laughs> the different kinds of stuff Um I have great hopes for the next upcoming seasons doing that. But um, I really, really hope that some of those sitters, um, we don't have their names now because they're being kept in the Amazon box in the basement because they're not letting them out until they get to have real plot arcs, you know. I'm going to come back to you and, and uh, talk to you about what you think character X might be. Hey, have you heard about our sponsor, Four Cats Boutique? So I just pulled up their website to have a look right now, and I am seeing bookmarks, earrings, uh, jewelry, pr art prints, um, cards, 
I see uh, Fantastic Four, I see Moon Knight, Wheel of Time is here, Star Wars, lots and lots of fandoms, lots of really gorgeous artwork, lots of collectibles, things to hang on your wall. Definitely a site worth checking out. And of course, Lord of the Ring things as well. So definitely check them out. That's Four Cats Boutique on Etsy. That's number four, Cats with a K, number four, Four Cats Boutique. Check them out. I have new Okay, so we've covered a lot. Um, yes. There's so much more that we can <laughs> talk about, but I think we're coming up to probably possibly our longest episode yet. So do we have any final thoughts on Femme Perspectives? Um, I'll just start out with saying um, you're welcome for dragging this out to be so long. Everything I touch podcast-wise is always very, very long. Uh, it's definitely <laughs> what happened to Watt Spoilers when I became part of it. Um, closing thoughts is... I just want to put it out there that for reasons that I cannot get into for spoilers, Min is my favorite character of the whole series. And we have gotten such a vanishing tiny trace of her that I can't even like get into like anything. But I'm really, really excited to see more of her and to see where her arc goes because she is... Um, just, yeah, one of my absolutely favorite characters. And I would love to come back and have a discussion with this kind of group about her when there is something to talk about. But just put a pin in that. Min is is the best, in, in my extremely not humble opinion. So I want to thank all our guests and our panel for joining us today. Thank you so much uh, for being here with us. And we hope to see you back for future seasons to continue this conversation. Thank you always, as always, to Michael and Jen out at the Watch Party Secret Island headquarters for making this possible. Thank you. Thank you, Michael and Jen. <laughs> and final question for us all. Which character would you play who is most unlike you? And Akila, you want to go first? Thank you. Um, so I think it has to be Leandrin. Um, because I think she is actually, even though I don't like her character, she's actually very intriguing and I'm sort of, you know, respect her and I respect her sort of very kind of, um, she's very firm in the way she approaches things. And I think that's why she's the, you know, the, the character that's most unlike me because she's seemed very black and white about everything and she's very sure about everything and she's got all the answers. And I am very much like, well... There's so much gray area, you know, um, when I approach things and I approach life. Um, and uh, yeah, and I just couldn't be so sort of sure that, you know, gentling somebody is just absolutely the right way to go. And, you know, and it would be so much so interesting, I think, to kind of explore that and explore where she's going to go in the show. Also speak. Thank you, Akila. Uh, Samaria. Yeah. Speaking of, uh, Min would be the person I'd play. Um, she is just she's so different which I know is the question but like the idea that you can just opt out of something like what has been prescribed your duty in life what you know people feel like you should do um I I don't understand it like it, intellectually it makes perfect sense emotionally in the way my psyche's set up it's just I, I could not I wouldn't um like and if something bothers me I don't just walk away kind of it kind of scares me that people can but me I just yell back 
Like that, that's my way of dealing with things. Like instead of saying, oh, well, I just won't do it. Or maybe I'm the problem. No, I will just be like, actually, I'm not the problem at all and cuss you out. Um, so men, men's very different. And I don't like, I like her, but I don't think we could be friends. <laughs> Jesse. Um, I was also going to say Leandra, but since uh, someone already said it, I will I will actually say Matt, um, because I am not a very roguish type of person. And Matt kind of has that kind of rogue roguish energy, like sort of like playing around, messing with people, sort of sort of energy thief energy. Um, and I think I, if I ever got to play a character like that, it would be a lot of fun. Uh, but it's very unlike who I am. I, I'm not the roguish energy if I was like and it would probably be like a Gwen mixed with Moraine probably. Mm-hmm. Um but uh but yeah Matt would be just a lot of fun to just kind of be like the roguish kind of like playing tricks on people kind of being a little bit smarmy and, and jokey and sarcastic. Um but then also like having the weight like also like having to deal with a lot of crap too <laughs> as well. So uh so Matt Matt would be my answer. Also Siobhan? I'm struggling with this one, I won't lie. Um I'm gonna go with Egwene. Just the whole um, sacrificing her future with Rand to kind of go off and do her own thing. Um, Not that it's the wrong decision, but I think when I look back at who I was at that age, I think I would have made the exact opposite one and probably lived to regret it. Wow. Aradia? For me, I think it's Nynaeve because she is so assertive and self-confident and angry in an expressive way. Um, I definitely have a lot of anger in me, but I'm much more of the like freeze and internalize. I'm like, oh, you think you're right? Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so wrong. Like I will I will question like my own name. You know, if if someone tells me that's not, like I I want to agree with people. I want to go along. And Nynaeve's prickly sense of herself, the way that that Moraine comes in and Nynaeve just marches right up to her and is like strutting and puffing out her chest and like that whole little like stare down thing. Like I just, if Moraine came into my temple while I was cleaning it and started to tell me that I don't know how old I am, I'd be like, yeah, you're right. I have no idea. Um, so I love Nynaeve's strength and I am in absolute awe of it because it's so opposite from how my anger expresses. And I would love to be more like her. There's so many life lessons I could take from her. But yeah, she's probably my most opposite. Well, I was also going to say Leandrin. Uh, I think she's turning into a bit of a fan favorite. Um, but uh, I will also go with um, Loyal. I can't imagine being so calm and steady, and grounded, and all of those things. I would not be like loyal. I'd like to be, um, but if you took my book, I would kill you. I'd probably kill you with it, and then carry on reading. So, yeah. I was thinking of any of the white cloaks as my backup answer, because I can't imagine being so sure of myself. Unfortunately, in the right context. Yeah, is it disturbing that I could possibly imagine myself a little bit like